And uh, that's, this is what we'll be going through uh, for the, the next probably 52 weeks or 52 months. So this will last us a while because the, the catechism is broken up into 52 sections because they were using it on 50, for a yearly calendar. So 52 Lord's Days in a row, they would use the catechism and then that way they were going through it once a year. That, that was their mentality and the way that they did it. So we'll take a section uh, a month and then we'll go through it in that way. So uh, today what we're gonna do is, I just wanna do an introduction to kind of what we're doing and why we're going to do it and then look at some passages and then also read, there's a short history in this, uh, in this little booklet, a short history of how the catechism came about and kind of explain that in a little bit of history there. Um, and then I also gave you a quote that is a quote from John Owen uh, that we'll read as well. And I think it is helpful for why we would want to study doctrine in this way. Typically our practice is to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible and certainly that should be a staple of our teaching and of the ministry uh, of the church but also it is good for us to study doctrines in a systematic way where the teaching of the whole Bible on a certain topic is all brought together in one place right so that we're seeing because not one place in scripture will reveal or unveil to us the whole of a teaching of a particular doctrine. One aspect is here, another aspect is in another place, another one somewhere else. And where people really go off the rails is that many times we don't have the ability to put all that together. And this is why it's good and helpful to have these kinds of confessions and catechisms to help guide us and to keep guardrails so that we don't go off into error. Uh, this is the problem in many churches today, and it's prevalent in America. And during the Reformation, they produced these documents to be a benefit and help to the churches and to the local pastors, because even the, your typical pastor, uh, it's very difficult for him to put all of these pieces together. It's just, there's so much content in the Bible. It's a very big book. <laughs> and to master all of its content on a specific, on a specific topic would take a lifetime, much less when you're dealing with all of the issues and topics that are brought to bear in the Bible. And then how those things are building one upon another, right? There are foundational doctrines and then there are other things that flow out of them that are built upon those. So being able to put in peace all this together in a, in a systematic and a clear way is very helpful for us. And it's good for us to do this as a church. And it's also very beneficial to do this in our homes as well with our family, especially with our children when they're young, to teach them doctrine in this way. And using a catechism is a excellent tool to help instill those truths into our children so that they uh, become sound in the faith, sound in the faith. And that was really the basis for the writing of this catechism was uh, a survey of the state of the churches and the families and they were shocked at how little the people knew about the Bible and how much superstition was still ingrained in the people and they did not know up from down and so they wrote this to distribute it into the churches and into the homes so that the people would be sound in the faith okay okay so <clears throat> let's pray and then we'll begin our study okay let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time to be together today. And Lord, to be meeting again uh, as men, Lord, knowing that it is our solemn duty. Lord, you have put all of us, Lord, all of us who are in adulthood, Lord, who have families. Lord, we are the pastors of our home. Lord, all of us have that responsibility of being a teacher and a shepherd over our wives, over our children. And so, Father, we need to take this very seriously. Lord, we need to make sure that our families, our children, are raised in the fear of the Lord, that they are sound in faith, that they are not believing errors or, uh, Lord, uninterested and, and, Lord, untaught in the things of God. So, Father, we want to know your word. Lord, we want to have sound doctrine. Lord, not holding to uh, myths and genealogies and superstitions, Lord, to false teachings, but rather, Lord, we want to be sound in the faith and we want our beliefs to be formed by your holy word. 
Father, we thank you for those men in the past who have gone before us. Lord, those who have worked and labored so diligently. Lord, to leave us these tools, Lord, these gifts, in order to provide safeties and guardrails. Lord, to guide us into the truth. Lord, to help us navigate the Bible more easily and more clearly so that we do not go astray into heresy and false teaching. So, Father, help us as we begin this study. And, Lord, we pray that you would bless our time together. Lord, as well, that we would be able to bring other men, uh, Lord, into our company. Lord, to help them and to strengthen them in their faith as well. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. And also, I meant to say that as well. This is an open format to anyone, any men who uh, are interested and who want to come. They are more than welcome to come, more than welcome to come. We encourage you to invite them and to bring them, and it would be a good initial introduction into the church, into our church and the ministries and what we are doing here. So if you have friends uh, or family, be, feel free to invite them. Okay, so we are going to go through this catechism. So I want to first address what is a catechism, and then why are we going to go through it? And a catechism is simply a teaching tool. This is all it is. And a catechism could be a Christian catechism. You could have a Muslim catechism. You can have a Roman Catholic catechism. An atheist could write a catechism. Anyone could write a catechism because a catechism is simply a teaching tool by which you are dispensing information or teaching regarding a certain topic. And the basis of a catechism is using questions and answers to teach various truths. And you'll notice in the catechism, this is the format. There are various questions that are stated, and then the answer is given to those questions, and then there are the scriptural references that prove the validity that this is indeed what the Bible teaches. And this was uh, done in this way for the sake of teaching in the churches, right? To teach the people, right? What does the Bible believe about creation? What does the Bible teach about God? What does the Bible teach about the atonement? What does it teach about sanctification? Right? You have all of these doctrines in the Bible and people need to know what does the Bible teach concerning these things. So with the catechism, you have these short questions and answers and then the scripture references so that people are able to quickly and easily navigate the Bible and are able to go and find what does the Bible teach about this topic or that topic or another or another one. And it's also very helpful for children, right? For children, because children can learn these things. You can ask them the question and then they can repeat the answer back to you. And it's, so it is a simply a way of teaching Children teaching people, teaching in the churches so that they are sound in the faith. And again, this one is arranged around a 52-week cycle. Not that there's only 52 questions, but it is arranged around a 52-week cycle so that it could be taught yearly in the churches. And this is what they promoted and what they did when it was originally written. So the churches would take a service or a teaching time every week and teach on one of the sections in the catechism and then they would do that every week and every year they're going through all of these core doctrines the foundational doctrines that we need to understand to be christians so this is all it is it's simply a teaching tool and the churches have been using these for hundreds and hundreds of years right many many years the churches used confessions and catechisms as a way of keeping the people sound in faith so that they do not go off into errors and into heresies. And those churches that neglect these types of documents are the churches that become fanatics, they become crazy, they go off into all sorts of spurious interpretations and ideas because there is nothing to anchor them, to keep them sound in the faith, but rather they're depending upon their own wisdom, their own wisdom, their own insights, and they're not depending upon something or others to help them be sound in the faith, right? If you turn the average person loose and you just give them a Bible, many of them are going to go into error. They're going to take certain aspects of the Bible, they'll focus on one single aspect, but not be able to hold it in connection with other parts of the Bible so that they have a full understanding. And this is how many people have drifted off into heresies, into heresies because they are not 
sound in faith and they're not depending upon and using these types of documents, catechisms, and confessions. And there's a reason why since the very beginning, right? The Apostles' Creed being the first confession of the early church used in the very, very early days of the churches, right? They had these even before the writing of the New Testament. The Jews had confessions and things that helped the people understand the truth. So we need these types of things to be a benefit. Now, a catechism or a confession is only as good as it is faithful and consistent to the Bible. Roman Catholics have catechisms as well, but their catechisms are not helpful because they're not relying upon Scripture. So they're only as good as they are faithful to the Bible. The Heidelberg Catechism is an exceptional catechism written in the Reformed time, and actually it is the fourth most distributed book in the history of the world, which I didn't know that until recently. So the Bible is the number one published distributed book in the history of the world. The Pilgrim's Progress is number two. The Imitation of Christ is number three, and the Heidelberg Catechism is number four. So this document has a very rich tradition in the history of the church, and especially in Reformed churches. And even today, many Reformed churches, if they hold to the three forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the documents that they subscribe to, that they hold to, that is their confession by which they are ruled and their doctrine is governed in the church. So that is what a catechism is, simply a teaching tool by which you are able to instruct people in a very simple, easy to remember, right? We can all memorize questions and answers, right? It's not hard, it's not difficult to do. And so if a person memorizes these, then they're going to have a very solid grasp on the core foundational doctrines of the Bible, and it's going to keep them from drifting off into error. When someone begins to teach something contrary to the truth, they're going to know, wait, I remember question number 63 from my catechism, right? It says this, and this is the answer, and these are all the scripture references, and that contradicts what this guy is saying over here. So they can be very beneficial in that way. So now that is the what, what is the catechism? Now the why is that certainly as Christians, we must be sound in our faith. We have to have sound doctrine. We cannot believe whatever we want to believe, but rather we must believe the doctrines that are established and taught in the Bible. And these confessions, creeds, catechisms, they help us piece the Bible together by collecting the teachings of Scripture on a particular doctrine, and they put them in one nice, neat, simple statement, one place where we can go and then are able to navigate from there the rest of the Bible on what it says concerning this or that topic, right? If I said, what does the Bible teach about the atonement? Well, does the Bible teach regarding the atonement? Yes. But where does it teach about the atonement? Well, from Genesis to Revelation, all over the Bible. And the average person, if I said, provide me 10 verses that teach on the atonement, they're not able to do that. But if they have a catechism and if they've memorized it, they would be able to do that. They could supply it right there on the spot and they would know this is what the Bible teaches and these are the verses that are pertinent to that. And then you can go from there, right? It's again, these doctrines, the doctrines of Scripture are spread throughout the whole of the Bible, right? Piece by piece, bit by bit, here and there throughout the whole. And we need to be able to piece these things together so that we see the whole. We have a, a full and a proper understanding of every aspect of doctrine and the Word of God. Also, we have to hold these things in relationship together, right? If we just focus on the responsibility of man, Right? Is it man's responsibility to believe and to repent of sin? Yes, the Bible clearly teaches that. If we focus solely on that and we neglect the doctrine of election, of predestination, of God's sovereignty, we may begin to think that salvation is dependent upon man and that God plays no part in it. Right? These two things have to be held together. We have to read and understand what the Bible says, both about the predestination of God and also about the responsibility of men. Right? These things must be hold, held together and we cannot uh, minimize one and maximize the other, but we must believe both of them and what they mean as we are looking at them 
together. What does the scripture teach on both of these things? Now, a couple of passages for us to consider. First, 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4, 11 to 16. 1 Timothy 4, 11 through 16. Says, prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Here he is exhorting Timothy, Paul is, that he is to prescribe and teach these things. Right? These things relating to salvation. Namely, that there is a Savior of all men, especially to believers, right? who is the living God. He is to prescribe and teach sound doctrine, right? The teachings of the word of God, and he is to persevere in these things. He must do this not only for his own sake, but for who else's sake? For everyone else in the church, right? That is what is at stake. Salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. He says to be absorbed in these things, in true doctrine, absorbed in them. Right? They must be in our life, in our mind, in our mouth all the time. Right? These must conform our mind to the mind of Christ. Pay close attention, he says, to yourself and your teaching. Right? We are not at liberty to teach and to believe whatever we want. But we must teach and believe what the Bible says. Only what the Bible says, the Word of God. And the Bible is laying out for us doctrines. There are doctrines, there are teachings, that, that there is a theology in the Bible, right? It tells us what we are required to believe concerning the character and nature of God, concerning what man is, concerning sin, its judgment, concerning the life to come, concerning the way of salvation, concerning the person of Christ, his work, Right? The Bible is telling us what we must believe concerning all of these topics and many more. And we are not at liberty to pick and choose and believe whatever we want. But rather, we must, our doctrine must conform to the Word of God, right? to what the Scriptures are actually teaching. So we have to have sound doctrine. And again, confessions, creeds, catechisms, they can help us as tools to establish this in the churches and in the people, right? They are aids or guides or tools by which we are able to establish sound doctrine in the people. There has to be some catalog or categorization of the doctrines of the Bible, right? Of the various teachings of scripture. And this has always been the case. So we have to understand what it teaches in these various aspects in the various teachings of the Bible. Titus chapter one, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 16. Titus 1, 5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, 
not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. There, when, again, the Apostle Paul is giving to Titus these qualifications of the elders, in terms of their role and function in the local church, right, he begins by laying out the character, what must be true of them in terms of their godliness, the way that they live, the character that they possess. But in terms of their function in the local church and what they are to do, their role, right, what is their responsibility, is verse 9. They are to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. They must hold fast to the word of God. And God's word is always in accordance with sound teaching, right? With the teaching, with this body or set of doctrines that the church ascribes to or holds to. And this is so that they will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. They must be able to exhort the people in sound doctrine. They have to be able to teach the people, this is what the Bible says about the doctrine of creation. This is what the Bible says about the doctrine of the atonement, about the doctrine of sin, about the person of Christ, about the work of Christ, right? All of the doctrines of the Bible, they must be able to exhort and teach the people sound doctrine, right? Not corrupt doctrine, not unsound doctrine, but sound doctrine. And then when someone refutes that, or when someone begins to contradict what is sound, they have to be able to correct them and refute them. When they're saying something that is not consistent with the Bible, then they have to be able to take them and show them that, no, this is not what the Bible teaches, but this is what it teaches, and establish them in the truth, right? Giving to them sound doctrine. And here, he shows why this is so important, because there are many who are rebellious, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. The churches are always going to be plagued with false teachers. This has been the case from the very, very beginning. This is why in 1 John 4, 1, it says that we have to test the spirits to see if they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. There are many false prophets and false teachers that have gone out into the world. Here he says, especially those of the circumcision party. In their day, because the churches in the early days were primarily Jewish, then the Gentiles were coming in, the circumcision party, the Jewish party, they were the ones bringing in false doctrines into the church, trying to insist that the Gentiles be circumcised, that the Gentiles follow the law of Moses in these rituals and these various things. Well, all of that insistence is a corruption, a false understanding of doctrine. They do not understand the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Law of Moses and the Gospel of Christ. So there is a corruption there in their thinking, in their doctrine, in their teaching that is leading them to try to prescribe for the Gentiles things that are not necessary. And insisting that circumcision, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. That is a false doctrine. That's not consistent with the Word of God. Now, that's not even consistent with Moses, nor is it consistent with the New Testament teaching. And so we have to understand what is the relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, right? What are the laws that are still applicable for us today? What are the aspects of the Old Covenant that we no longer keep? Obviously, we're not keeping the food laws, right? Because we just had sausage this morning and it was very tasty indeed. Yes, we did have sausage. We're not following those laws. Well, why are we not following those laws? On what basis? What is the teaching? What is the doctrine that tells us that those laws were temporary, were for a time, but are not applicable for us now in the time of the new covenant? These all have to do with teachings, with doctrines, with understanding the Bible. And this is what these creeds and confessions are addressing. They're helping us navigate what the Bible says on these things so that we can be sound in faith and understand what the Bible says as a whole. Also, this is what the whole book of Hebrews in relationship to Old Covenant and New Covenant, that's what the whole book of Hebrews is dealing with, right? Essentially, what is this relationship of the church, of the New Covenant, those Christians to the law of Moses and especially to the ritual laws that were established there under the old covenant. And that's what we've been dealing with there. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. Ephesians 4, 11. It says, And he, being Christ, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fit and held together, by which, by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Here, Christ gives to his church, to his body, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, teachers, right? And the purpose of giving them to the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the work of service. And how can the saints do the work of service if they don't know what the Bible teaches? If they don't understand sound doctrine, if they're not sound in the faith, then they cannot live their life and they cannot do the work of service to the glory of God. He wants us to grow in our faith, to attain unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. This is what we need. When we are converted, we are like infants, right? We are like babes. But we don't need to remain like that. We need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And our Christian life from conversion to our death is a life of growth, right? We are growing from infancy to childhood to uh, like a teenager to a young adult, right? And we want to ultimately become those who are wise in the faith, right? Who are like old men who are sound, who have wisdom and understanding. That is what we are uh, aspiring toward. And that is what he wants here in the church, which is why he gives those teachers in the local church to build up the body so that they arrive to maturity, to adulthood in their faith. And what does this require? Teaching. They have to teach them sound doctrine. If they're not teaching, but instead playing games and doing all sorts of frivolous activities, then the people are not going to be mature in faith. And if they're teaching what is not sound in the faith, if they're teaching false doctrine, they're not going to grow up to maturity. They will only attain maturity as they are taught the truth of the Word of God. So they need to grow so that they're no longer children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. This is the problem. When people don't know doctrine, when they are not sound in the faith, then they are easy, easy to deceive. They are easy targets for false teachers. And this is who false teachers typically will target. Those who are young, often women as well, because they are more easily duped, right? They're more susceptible to false teaching and they will target those kinds of people. Well, if the people of the church are like children, then they're going to be tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. They're not going to be sound in their faith. And this is why we need to understand what the Bible teaches. We need to understand our doctrine, right, on all of these topics so that when one of these people who is using trickery craftiness in deceitful scheming, when they come along and they're trying to trick us, they're trying to use their craftiness to scheme us and to get us to believe a lie, we'll be able to spot their lie and say, that's not what the Bible teaches. And I know that's not what the Bible teaches because of this, this, and this. Well, the catechism can help us in understanding and having a holistic view of the Bible, knowing these doctrines of the Bible that are crucial for us to believe, foundational for us to believe, and knowing where to find verses in the Bible that address this specific topic. Because again, many times it's difficult for us to recall right off the top of our head a specific passage or a specific verse that addresses 
what needs to be addressed in the moment. And this is why they wrote these catechisms in order to help people be able to navigate the Bible in this way, right? So that they would have a springboard by which to defend their faith against those who are false. Then also Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews 5 verse 11. Hebrews 5 verse 11. says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Here, concerning him which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is his topic that he's addressing here in the book of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ over everything and why it is that we must maintain our faith in Christ and not turn back from him. He shouldn't have to be addressing this with the church again, but he's having to do it because they are unstable in their faith. They are being tempted to turn away from Christ and to go back to a form of Judaism without Christ. And he's warning them of the dangers of forsaking Christ. And concerning Christ, he says, I have much to say to you about this. There are more doctrines, more understanding, more clarity I want to give you concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done and how our salvation is completely dependent upon him. I want to teach you more about this, but I'm having to go back to these elementary principles and establish you in these things again because you have become dull of hearing. Right? If we don't understand the elementary truths, then how are we going to move on to other truths, to more complex truths, right? to more uh, understanding in these things? There has to be a core, a foundation of doctrine that we must receive, and then we build on from there. And this is why we must be, again, sound in our faith. He's having to go back to the elementary. Well, isn't this true when we're teaching our kids when they're young? They learn their ABCs. They learn to count you know, one, two, three, they learn these types of elementary truths. And then as they master those things, then they move on to more complex things, right? Uh, More difficult truths, or you build upon that layer upon layer upon layer upon layer. Not that we learn about Christ and then we move on to something other than Christ. We're always learning about Christ. That's what he's talking about here. He wants to teach them more about Christ, but he's having to go back and teach them elementary things about Christ because they become dull of hearing, right? They're not sound in the faith in this way. And he doesn't want them to be like that. He wants them to be mature, to have their senses trained to discern good from evil, to be able to discern good from evil, both in relationship to doctrine and also in relationship to living, right? Because it pertains to both. There's good doctrine and there's evil doctrine. We need to be able to discern the difference between good and evil, both in the teaching and in the way that we live and the way that other people live as well. So this is why then it's important for us to have sound doctrine, sound doctrine, a body of teaching that we ascribe to and that we hold to. And this is why even as a church, we ascribe to the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. It gives us a body of doctrine by which we can say, This is what we believe, right? We believe this doctrine. This is what we hold to. And it defines what that doctrine is. Because every church, every denomination says that they believe the Bible. Is there a denomination out there or a group of churches out there that says, we don't believe the Bible. We just, we we actually, we hate it. And, or we only believe half of it. No, everyone says that they believe the Bible, whether they're Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, Anglican, Episcopal, uh, Roman Catholic. The Mormons say that they believe the Bible, right? Everyone says that they have the right interpretation of the Bible. So we have to have some body of doctrine that says, okay, yes, we believe the Bible. And when we say we believe the Bible, this is what we mean, right? These are the doctrines that we ascribe to. And this is what the Bible teaches concerning these things. And wherever there is disagreement with the the Jehovah's Witness concerning the person of Christ, then we say, no, we don't, we don't ascribe to what this person says, and this is false teaching, and we reject those things. Or 
where it contradicts Roman Catholicism on the doctrine of justification. We would say, no, we do not adhere to what they say. This is what we believe. This is what the Bible teaches concerning these things. Okay, now, this piece of paper I passed out for you because when anytime something is read, it's much easier to follow along if you have a copy of it. Okay, so that's why I gave this. This is a quote from John Owen from his commentary on the book of Hebrews commenting on Hebrews chapter 1 verses 8 and 9. Hebrews 1 verses 8 and 9 says, but of the son he says, your throne O God is forever and ever and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Here, the basis of this commentary or what he's saying is him noticing and pointing out that in this passage, the apostle is comparing and contrasting what the Bible says about angels and what the Bible says about the Son of God. And it's taking passages from different parts of the Bible, bringing them together comparing them and then drawing conclusions concerning what the Bible says about angels and what the Bible says about the Son of God. So that's the basis of what he's talking about, how the apostle is bringing the Bible together, comparing and contrasting various passages so that he has a proper understanding of what the Bible says concerning these topics, okay? And then this is his application of this thought, okay? There it says, this is John Owen. He says, the conferring and comparing of scriptures is an excellent means of coming to an acquaintance with the mind and will of God in them. Thus dealt the apostle in this place. He compared what is spoken of angels in one place and what of the son in another. And from thence manifested what is the mind of God concerning them. This duty lies in the command we have to search the scriptures to make a diligent investigation of the mind of God in them, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What the Spirit has declared of the mind of God in one place, with what in like manner he has manifested in another. God, to try our obedience and to exercise our diligence unto a study in his word day and night, and our continual meditation thereof, has planted his truths with great variety up and down his word. Yes, here one part and there another of the same truth, which cannot be thoroughly learned unless we gather them together into one view. For instance, in one place God commands us to circumcise our hearts and to make ourselves new hearts that we may fear him, which at first consideration seems so to represent it not only as our duty, but also within our power, as though we had no need of any help from grace for its accomplishment. And another, he promises absolutely to circumcise our hearts and to give us new hearts to fear him, as though it were so his work as not to be our concernment to attempt it. But now these several places, being spiritually compared together, make it evident that it is our duty to have a new and circumcised heart, so it is the effectual grace of God that must work and create them in us. And the like may be observed in all the important truths that are of divine revelation. And this discovers the root of almost all the errors and heresies that are in the world. Men whose hearts are not subdued by faith and humility unto the obedience of the truth, lighting on some expression in the scripture that singly considered, seem to give countenance to some such opinion as they are willing to embrace. Without further search, they fix it on their minds and imaginations until it is too late to oppose anything unto it. For when they are once fixed in their persuasions, those other places of scripture, which they should have with humility, have compared with those whose seeming sense they cleave unto, and from thence have learned the mind of the Holy Ghost in them all, are considered by them to no further end, but only how they may pervert them and free themselves from the authority of them. This, I say, seems to be the way of the most of them who uh, pertinaciously cleave unto false and foolish opinions. They rashly take up a seeming sense of some particular place and then obstinately make that sense the rule of interpreting all other scriptures whatever. 
Thus, in our own days, we have many who from the outward sound of these words, he is the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world, having taken up a rash, foolish, and false imagination that Christ is that light which is remaining in all men, and therein their guide and rule. Do from thence either rest the whole scripture to make it suit and answer that supposal, or else utterly slight and despise it. When if they had compared it with other scripture, which clearly explain and declare the mind of God in the things which concern the person and mediation of the Lord Christ, with the true nature and works of natural and saving spiritual light, and submitted to the authority and wisdom of God in them, they might have been preserved from their delusion. It shows also the danger that there is unto men unskilled and unexercised in the word of truth, when without the advice and assistance or direction of others who are able to guide them and instruct their inquiry after the mind of God, they hastily embrace opinions which it may be some one text or other scripture doth seemingly give countenance unto. But this, by this means do men run themselves into the forementioned danger every day, especially where any seducing spirit applies himself unto them with swelling words of vanity, boasting of some misunderstood word or other. Thus have we seen multitudes led by some general expression in two or three particular places of scripture into an opinion about a general redemption of all mankind and every individual thereof. When, if they had been wise and able to have searched those other scriptures innumerably setting forth the eternal love of God of his elect, his purpose to save them by Jesus Christ, the nature and end of his oblation and ransom and compared them with others, they would have understood the vanity of their hasty conceptions. For these things, it appears, what diligence, patience, waiting, wisdom are required of all men in searching of the scriptures, who intend to come unto the acknowledgement of the truth thereby. And unto this end, and because of the greatness of our concernment therein, doth the scripture itself abound with precepts, rules, directions, to enable us unto a right and profitable discharge of our duty. They are too many here to be inserted. I shall only add, that the diligence of heathens will rise up in judgment and condemn the sloth of many that are called Christians in this matter. For whereas they had no certain rule, way, or means to come to the knowledge of the truth, yet they cease not with indefinable diligence in industry to inquire after it and to trace the obscure footsteps of what was left in their own natures or implanted on the works of creation. But many, the most of those unto whom God hath granted the inestimable benefit and privilege of his word as a sure and infallible guide to lead them into the knowledge of all useful and saving truth, do openly neglect it, not accounting it worthy their searching, study, and diligent examination. How woefully will this rise up in judgment against them at the last day is not difficult to conceive, and how much greater will be their misery who, under various pretenses, for their own corrupt ends, do deter, yea, and drive others from the study of it. So there, I think he's making a very good point concerning the need to examine Scripture with Scripture, to look at doctrines in the relationship that they have one to another. And it is true that many, many errors and heresies that have come into the church come because people have this tunnel vision on one specific aspect that seems to say something, but if they compared it with other passages of Scripture, they would have the right understanding. But because they will not take time to do so, they run off into error and heresy. And then they become so entrenched in it that whenever these other passages are brought to their attention, they find a way to pervert them so as to not contradict what they want to believe. This one corrupt idea rules over everything else so that they have a completely corrupted understanding. Okay, okay, then lastly, at the beginning of our little booklet, there is a short history written here, a brief history of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's on page one, okay, page one of your little booklet, booklet and I'll read it and make a few comments here and there as we go. Okay, the Heidelberg Catechism is the fourth most widely circulated book in history behind only the Bible, the Imitation of Christ, and the Pilgrim's Progress. So three of the four are 
muy good. The other one, the imitation of Christ, it's a Roman Catholic uh, who wrote that. And it's a, kind of a mystical uh, approach to prayer and these kinds of things. Actually, that book gained a lot of traction in Protestant churches in recent years. That's not a good development. They weren't reading their catechisms, see? If they had been reading their catechisms, they would have known not to touch that thing. Okay. It says, it has been translated into numerous languages and has been and continues to be the statement of faith of millions of Christians. Aside from its rich biblical and theological content, its spirit is warm, pastoral, and reassuring, and it provides edifying and encouraging devotional content for children and adults alike. This book of comfort, as the Heidelberg Catechism is sometimes called, remains the most widely used and warmly practiced catechism of the Reformation. How is a catechism published in 1563 relevant and helpful for you today? The answer is found in the original intent of the catechism. The history of the Heidelberg Catechism provides helpful insight into the original and ongoing purpose and value of the work. So, to a brief history we shall turn. In the 16th century, the Holy Roman Empire was composed of many small territories or states. The Holy Roman Empire during this time would be like modern Germany today, though also some other regions as well. So that part of Europe was considered the Holy Roman Empire at that time, okay? And it was broken up into these smaller territories or states uh, called a palatinate. Okay, so among the most prominent of these territories was the electoral palatinate. This notable territory was divided into two parts, the lower and upper palatinate. Nestled in the lower palatinate was the university town and the capital city of Heidelberg. Seven electors who governed in the Holy Roman Empire and had great power and influence had the joint responsibility of electing the emperor. Charles V was emperor from 1519 to 1556. He was the devout Roman Catholic emperor who called Martin Luther to the Diet of Worms and strongly opposed the Reformation. Though hostility against Protestantism was great in the empire, the Protestant cause was gaining traction in Heidelberg and other places, and electors would play a vital role in Protestantism. Here, again, this region called the Holy Roman Empire was broken up into these seven districts, uh, uh, palatates, whatever you want to call them, and then these had rulers over the various regions, and then those seven would come together and they would elect an overarching ruler over the whole territory. Right? So it's like a confederation of these city-states or these territories all together, but then having some things that were done universally with this, the emperor who was elected. In this case, it was Charles V. And Charles V was a devout Roman Catholic. All of this is during the time when Martin Luther is... Uh, he published or wrote... Uh, his 95 Thesis that he put on the door at Wittenberg in 1517. Then in 1521 is when the Diet of Worms took place, where he was called and all of his books were brought up and he was having to answer for what he was writing against Roman Catholicism. But during this time, the Reformation and these principles and teachings that were coming out of Martin Luther, but also others, uh, were beginning to gain traction in these territories and they were becoming more influential. And various rulers, right, so this, it, the emperor didn't have control over everything. These rulers, local rulers, had a lot of power and influence as well, okay? And some of them were more favorable to the Reformation. That's what saved Martin Luther from being executed. One of them, Frederick, uh, was very favorable to him and he rescued him, hid him for many years uh, so that he wasn't put to death, okay? Okay, after defeating the Schmalatic League in the Schmalatic War, enacting the Osberg Interim and suppressing the ongoing Reformation, Charles V approved the Peace of Osberg in 1555, a treaty which instilled peace between Roman Catholics and Lutherans and allowed each ruler to decide his territory's religion. Dr. N.R. Needham said the Peace of Osberg was a milestone in the history of religious tolerance. He added, it stipulated the territorial principle that a region was to follow the faith of its ruler. If anyone in a particular region disagreed with his ruler's region, religion, he was allowed to move to a different region, 
And in any city where both Lutherans and Roman Catholics were represented, each was to be tolerated. Okay, so this was a, before they were just killing each other, mostly the Catholics killing the Protestants because they had all the power. But at this point, it had become a big enough issue in the empire that a middle road needed to be addressed because you can't kill half of your people. So they said, we just need to tolerate each other and get along. If the ruler of the region is Roman Catholic, then it'll be a Roman Catholic region. If the people are Protestant and they don't want to be under a Roman Catholic ruler, then they're free to leave and go somewhere else and be under a ruler who holds and believes like they do. And if you have a city where you have a mixture, then just get along and don't kill each other, okay? Easier said than done. Okay, despite the treaty's protection of religious liberty and Lutherans, it was problematic as it did not leave room for the Reformed faith in the empire. Regardless of the opposition to Reformed thinking from the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans, the Palatinate became a hotbed of the Reformed faith. Here, there's a distinction being made between the Roman Catholics, which we understand, and then the Lutherans, which were those that were following the teachings of Martin Luther and what he was advancing, and then what's here called the Reformed faith. And this is going to be those who are being heavily influenced by John Calvin. John Calvin, by this time, had arrived at Geneva and had brought the Reformation there to Geneva, and it became kind of the centerpiece of what we call the Reformation movement or the Reformed faith. So Lutheranism is a part of the Reformation, but so is the Reformed faith that follows many of the teachings of John Calvin being the most prominent of the theologians during that time. So there are those who are holding and following after that teaching, and this piece of Osberg doesn't make room for them. Only Lutherans and Roman Catholics, but the Reformed people are still being persecuted at this time. And many of them were being imprisoned and even put to death uh, during this time. Okay, Louis V was electorate in the Palatinate from 508 to 544. He was not interested in spiritual reforms. He was more interested in politics and hunting. Sounds like one of our own uh, current leaders, right? Okay, actually, well, if they would just be concerned with hunting, we would all be better off, right? <laughs> they would leave the politics alone. Okay, he was succeeded by his brother, Frederick II, who served from 1544 to 1556 and was more favorable toward Protestantism. The Palatinate became Lutheran during Frederick II's rule. Otto Henry, a Lutheran, was his successor and ruled from 1556 to 1559. He served for only three years, yet he promoted Protestant catechesis and worship, established the Biblia Ethica uh, Palatinia, or the Palatinate Library in Heidelberg, and sent out a team to assess the spiritual condition of the churches in his territory. Right, wouldn't that be something to have a ruler who is trying to assess the spiritual condition of the churches in his territory to see if they're sound in the faith? This is what we should desire, to have such rulers and leaders like this. Sadly, the results of the spiritual assessment revealed that ministers were ill-equipped. Likewise, the people, including children and youth, were ignorant of Scripture and Christian doctrine, and were therefore spiritually anemic, superstitious, and stuck in unhelpful traditions. Right? These regions had been under Roman Catholicism for many, many years. So there were many traditions, superstitions, practices that were ingrained in the life of the people. Probably they didn't know why they did any of this stuff. And then also they didn't know the Bible. They didn't know the Bible. They didn't know doctrine. They didn't know anything. They're stuck in all of these kind of superstitious. And this is not only the people, the churches, but also the pastors. They don't know the Bible either. And so this is not a good development. Otto Henry progressed the Protestant cause in the Palatinate. However, he died in 1559. His nephew, Frederick III, succeeded him. With this change, the Reformed faith surged in the Palatinate. Frederick served until 1576. Frederick was a sincere and godly man. Though he grew up Roman Catholic and married a Lutheran, he would play an integral role in advancing the Reformed faith throughout the Palatinate and eventually the world. While Otto Henry was elector, he had assembled a theologically diverse faculty at the University of Heidelberg, Lutheran, Reformed, and Zwinglian. Zwingli was another of the reformers. So the, the three big dogs are Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, okay, in these different regions or different areas. And they all kind of had 
there, there was some overlap, but they're kind of working independent of one another. So each of those areas kind of took on their own unique flavor following whomever it was that they were, was the chief reformer of that, of that time. Not that any of these men were just doing it lone wolf. Uh, you know, Luther had others who were studying with him. Calvin had others who were helping and writing and studying with him. Zwingli had others who were studying with him. Zwingli, the good thing about him is he actually died on the battlefield. So uh, he died with an axe in his hand, uh, fighting against Roman Catholics. This is the kind of people we need to follow, right? These are the good guys. So, okay. Uh, so this faculty was a diverse mixture of Protestant uh, beliefs, Lutheran, Reformed, and Zwinglian, Okay. There was theological tension and spiritual immaturity in the Palatinates and in Heidelberg. Frederick inherited a religiously confused Palatinate. Theological conflict necessitated Frederick to make a decisive move. So in June of 1560, Frederick held a five-day disputation to discern the theological differences between the Lutherans and the Reformed. He sided with the Reformed, and this led him to dismiss Tilman Hussius, who held Lutheran convictions and opposed Reformed theology. From his roles as professor of theology at the University of Heidelberg and preacher at the Church of the Holy Spirit in Heidelberg. So this, these would be the two dominant roles, both as a scholar and as a preacher. He was the primary professor there at the University of Heidelberg and the universities at this time are training ministers. This is what they're doing. So not university like the universities today that are uh, pagan and liberal and doing those things. But they were primarily training ministers, pastors, for them then to go out and preach in the churches, okay? And this one man who was a Lutheran, he held the highest rank as the scholar, the primary teacher in the university, and then also was the preacher of the most prominent church there in Heidelberg. And this is the capital city. So what's happening in that church is going to filter out into, it's, it's paving the trail, the path, for all the other churches to follow, okay? The Church of the Holy Spirit in Heidelberg. This was an important turning point. The churches in Heidelberg and the Palatinate were in disrepair and needed revitalization and reformation. The University of Heidelberg was out a professor of theology, and the Church of the Holy Spirit needed a preacher. Frederick III was committed to the Reformation for the glory of God, so he made important decisions that would produce much spiritual fruit for years to come. Back in 1556, Frederick III's teenage son, Herman, tried to cross the uh, Oron River in France in a boat with some college friends. They had all been drinking, drinking in boats and water. See, they never good, it's never good. Caspar Olivanius, a 20-year-old student, watched from the shore. Eventually, the boat capsized, and the young man began to drown. Olivanius jumped into the water to save his friend Herman, but failed, and Herman drowned. Olivanius, who would have drowned as well, but Herman's servant, who mistook him for Herman, saved Olivanius. Uh, Samanete Carr recounts, In the fright of the moment, Olivanius promised God to serve him as a preacher to the Germans if his life could be spared. This promise was fulfilled when Frederick III, remembering Olivanius' attempt to save his son several years before, bailed him out of jail and brought him to Heidelberg to teach and preach the Reformed faith. Olivanius served in the University of Heidelberg, but eventually was replaced in order to focus primarily on preaching. Here, this, a few things about this Olivanius. He was a, a young man when this happened, about 20 years old, when this, he tried to save his friend from drowning, and then he almost drowned himself and then he was saved and, and spared, God spared his life. That's when he made this oath, took an oath to God that he would be a preacher and teach the German people the word of God, okay? This is similar to Martin Luther as well. We remember that Martin Luther was almost struck by lightning, and w when that took place, he was uh, going training to become a, law uh, a lawyer, uh, but then when he was almost struck by lightning, he said that he would serve God and he became a monk from that point forward, okay? And that's when he began his theological training. And so a similar thing here, this man almost dies. He sees that God spares his life, so he dedicates his life to serve God as a preacher in this way. When it says that he has, was bailed out of jail, he wasn't in jail for being a riotous man, for causing trouble, any of those kinds of things. 
but he was already preaching the word of God, and he was doing so in a Lutheran city, and they arrested him and threw him in jail because he was contradicting what they held and taught. He was teaching the Reformed faith. So after his studies, he, he studied primarily in Paris, and after he got his uh, primary things out of the way, he went to Geneva and studied under Calvin for about four years. He was there with Calvin and Beza and Bollinger and all of the primary reformers there in Geneva. He was personal, intimate friends with Calvin and studied with him for four years, learned under his tutelage, and then he went back to these German areas. He went and was a Latin teacher at a school. He was supposed to be teaching Latin, but then he began to also slip in some doctrine and theology and was teaching the, the youth, those things. And then he started preaching in some of the churches as well and was preaching the Reformed faith, right? Teaching the doctrines of the Reformation against the doctrines that the Lutherans held. And then eventually they threw him in jail, okay, for this. And then uh, Frederick had to bail him out. So he had to pay off all of his fines and then he was forbidden from coming back to those cities, okay? So he bailed him out and then brought him to Heidelberg and wanted him to be the new professor at the university and then the primary preacher there in the Church of the Holy Spirit. His giftings were not so much in writing and being a, a scholar in that way, but in preaching, preaching and teaching in the local church. So originally he was the professor, but then his gifts were not in that regard, so he was replaced with another man named Zacharias Ursinus. And he is the, these two men, Olivanius and Ursinus, are the, the primary writers of this catechism. But primarily Ursinus. He was the intellect and the, the brilliant mind who put it together, but with the help of Olivanius. Okay? Okay, there it says, Frederick invited the well-known reformer, Peter Martyr, Migley to serve as professor of theology at the university, but he declined because of old age. Instead, he recommended a bright student of his, Zacharias Ursinus. Ursinus accepted the position in 1561. This hire would put the city and the University of Heidelberg on the map as the origin of one of the most clear, compelling, and beautiful expressions of the Christian faith. Frederick III understood that the Palatinate was not in good spiritual order. However, he also understood that the University of Heidelberg was now in much better theological hands. What can unify his territory in the Reformed faith? Frederick concluded a new catechism needed to be written and published. A Reformed catechism would provide theological clarity, harmony, and direction for the families, schools, and churches of the Palatinate. Frederick, sometimes called Frederick the Pious, commissioned Zacharias Ursinus and Caspar Olivanius, the young professor of theology and court preacher, to prepare a catechism for the instruction of youth, guidance of pastors and teachers, and overall edification of Christians in the Palatinate. This catechism became the Heidelberg Catechism. The first draft of the Heidelberg Catechism was completed in 1562 and was revised by a synod and published in 1563 in Heidelberg. Ursinus and Olivanius were given oversight of the catechism. Though Ursinus was the primary author of the content and Olivanius was closely involved, the catechism was the product of the teamwork of brilliant theological minds who drew from various other significant theological works. These theologians helped with editing and gave final approval. So it wasn't just written by one man or even by the two men. They were the primary writers of it, but then it would go to many other pastors and theologians, and then they were giving their input as well. So it was a collected effort in this way to make sure that everything was good and on the up and up and consistent with the Word of God. Frederick himself wrote, With the advice and cooperation of our entire theological faculty in this place, and of all the superintendents and distinguished servants of the church, we have secured preparation of a summary course of instruction or catechism of our Christian religion, according to the word of God in the German and Latin languages. Frederick was also involved and played a central role in creation and distribution of the Heidelberg Catechism. Historian Dr. R. Scott Clark noted, the churches needed a clear, unambiguous articulation of what scripture teaches concerning the most important questions of Christian faith and life. The Heidelberg Catechism stands among the most organized, 
well-defined, beautiful, and helpful statements of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Dr. Birma rightly concludes, Like the others, it provides an explanation of the basic elements of the Christian faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Sacraments. What is distinctive about the Heidelberg Catechism, however, is that it connects these explanations to a single overarching theme, the theme of comfort. The 129 questions were helpfully organized in 52 sections, or Lord's Days, which parallel the weeks of the year and aim at giving readers comfort. The content and structure provided a well-organized and compelling curriculum for the ministers to use for their Sunday afternoon preaching through the year. The Heidelberg Catechism unified the Palatate in the Reformed faith. It was used in churches and schools of the Palatate to educate young and old alike and to ignite true spiritual reformation. It also began to spread throughout the world in diverse languages. Dr. Needman concludes, The Heidelberg Catechism became arguably the most important of all Reformed confessions, gaining acceptance across the entire Reformed world, especially in Germany and the Dutch Republic. It is important to note that the Heidelberg Catechism was not the brainchild of just one man or the statement of faith of a few. It articulates what millions of Christians believed in ages past and still believe today. So, that is the short history of the, how it came about, how it was con, uh, con, uh, put together. Again, it would be great if we had a ruler like Frederick III who was so interested in the spiritual state of his churches that he would commission this, distribute it, and do it for the benefit of his own kingdom, right? That's a good thing for us to desire and pray for. Also, they mentioned that the overarching theme is the theme of comfort, comfort for God's people by giving us assurance of salvation, right? That was the reason they wrote it. In the first question, that is what the question answers. What is our only comfort? And our only comfort, they say, is knowing that body and soul belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we are held safely by him. So it deals with this issue of comfort by first addressing the guilt of man in our sin, the grace of God in overcoming our sin through the person and work of Christ, and then the life of gratitude that we should live as a result of what God has done for us. That is in the, the later part of the uh, catechism. So those are the three main heads that it deals with. The guilt of our sin, which requires us to know who God is, and to know who we are and what our sin is against him and its penalty, the grace of God in overcoming that great guilt, and then how we should live our life as a result of what God has done for us, which is obedience to God, an exposition of the Ten Commandments, and a life of dependence on him, an exposition of the Lord's Prayer. So that's kind of the way that it flows and how it follows. And we'll start next time on question, well, section one. Section one, which are the first couple of questions.